0: Hello, and welcome to Political Shadings, your window into politics and the green economy. We are a podcast that discusses the intersection of business, policy, politics, green building, energy efficiency, and a little bit of common sense as well. I'm John Lawyer. And I'm Andrew Goldberg. And we are sponsored by Sumfi and coming to you live in the big wig media studios in the Willard Office Complex, part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. So a quick word from our sponsors. We have a new team member for our podcast. Her name is Jackie Hankard. She works for Somfy, and she's in charge of social media. Jackie, why don't you tell us a little bit about what Somfy is and what they do?
1: For over 50 years, Somfy has been pioneering innovative motorization and automated solutions for window coverings and exterior shading products. With comfort, ease of use, security, and sustainability in mind, Somfy's seamless and connected solutions are designed to help people make the move to living spaces impactful for humans and with a reduced impact on nature.
0: Thanks, Jackie, really appreciate that. And so we also wanna make sure that you guys know that beautiful music you hear in our intro uh, is by the studio musician Joshua Espinoza, that's joshuaespinoza.com. He's a fantastic studio musician, It was great to work with, and we really like that music. After the break, we will be coming back to talk to Andrew and obviously me about what's going on in Washington, DC. We'll be right back. Okay, so Andrew, here we are yes. again.
2: Here we are again, episode number two. Wow, we are just We've made it two months. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. So let's get right into it.
0: Uh, I know we got a lot to talk about. Um, yeah. What's going on? Like, what's what's the focus in Washington D.C.? What's wh- where are we at?
2: Well, see, other than the heat, which is uh, of course a problem pretty much everywhere. Yeah. Uh, well, a lot of heat on Capitol Hill also uh, right now. Congress is basically wrapping up for its summer break, uh, but they've not gotten a lot of work done. Uh, the big focus typically this time of year are the annual spending bills, but because of some big differences between the uh, very conservative uh, group of, of House Republicans called the Freedom Caucus who want much lower spending levels on one side and the President uh, and the Democratic-led Senate on the other, uh, not a lot is getting done. And, and so... Right now we're looking at the possibility of a potential government shutdown at the end of September. Uh, in addition, the annual defense spending bill, which is something that Congress has passed fairly easily every year for the last half century, uh, may actually be uh, in jeopardy this year because of some <laughs> some controversial uh, riders attached uh, on the House side. And so you know, things are, are a little bit, um, how should I put this, unsettled at the moment right now. Uh, th- that seems to be the new normal. I, that really is a new normal. Uh, you know, it, it really raises the, uh, that that question of how you get things done in Washington. Yeah, uh, and it's become a real real challenge because you have on one side you have a president who who wants to get things done, like all presidents wants to act. You have the Congress there that, in many cases, uh, you know, stands in the way. And it happens with parties on both sides. We're not saying that it's one side or the other. There is this gridlock, but it really speaks a lot to some of the how hard it is to get legislation. Uh, and policy passed because any one or, or small group of members of Congress can, can block everything and hold things up. So,
0: what's the net effect of that other than the dreaded term gridlock?
2: Well, uh, there, there are a couple of effects. Uh, you know, I mean, there are folks out there, of course, who will say, hey, Washington's not doing anything great. You know, keep them out of the, keep, keep out of the way.
0: Less government.
2: Uh, less government, you know, better. I mean, there are people out there who say, let's shut the government down and we'll show. Uh, well, so we don't need it. And, of course, that's happened a few times over the last 20 or so years. And guess what? People actually would like their government to As be open. As it turns out, we need government. We do need government for, for certain things. Yeah. Um, well, a couple of things happen. And, and and one of the big debates that's happening right now, and this really, uh, I think, is is going to become a growing issue over the years, really is the role of the president versus Congress. And, and so, you know, I, I'm sure, John, we're the same age. I'm sure you watched uh, Schoolhouse Rock. <laughs> as a kid, as a, sure. a youngin, and you know the I'm a bill. I'm only a bill. Right. You know, yeah. Right. A bill comes to Congress. It gets passed. It's signed, and you're done. Yeah, no, it's not how it works. That's not how it works. I, I, obviously, at, at some basic level, that is it. But but really, so much of what happens here in Washington, and so much of that of the stuff that you and I people do is, is really dealing with the way that the 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 White House, the executive branch, works on policy versus the legislative branch. We used to think that. Or people think that getting a bill passed is the end of the process. we got a bill done, mission accomplished, put out the banner, we're all done. But in fact, any kind of legislation requires the executive branch to, to put forward regulations, which in some ways could actually undermine whatever it is Congress wanted to do. Um, in addition, you have in many instances where a president, an executive branch, to want to take action uh, but don't really have the authorization from Congress. So a president in our system can't just do something. He can't just decide, uh, I'm going to invade Canada. Or I'm was, gonna...
0: was it the criticism lobbied against the Obama administration is that he became the executive orderer
2: in chief? Exactly. It was the pen and phone policy. <laughs> Sign executive orders, get things done. And look, everybody does it. Donald Trump does, did it, right. Joe Biden. And, and what's interesting right now is it's really becoming to a head. And so there was a case... A Supreme Court case, it decided just about a month ago, I'm sure a lot of people are aware of and maybe were impacted by, uh, where President Biden uh, announced kind of a broad um, loan forgiveness for people with student loans. Sure. It was, I think, something like 47 or so or 43 million Americans would have seen their student loans canceled. Um, and I think the president can't just say that. He can't just say poof. He's not the king. He's not the emperor.
0: Well, he, he cited specifically his right to do that under a particular
2: law related to the pandemic. Exactly, yeah. So it was a law called the HEROES Act, which was first passed uh, in the wake of September 11th. And what that law says, um, it basically gives the Secretary of Education uh, the power to, and I'm quoting here, respond to a national emergency by waiving or modifying any provision involving student loans.
0: So the national emergency was the pandemic in this
2: case? Exactly. The intent, of course, back then was 9-11, soldiers going off to to war in Afghanistan. Uh, But what the president said was, look, okay, this meets the requirement. There's a national emergency, a pandemic. We can agree upon that. The law says that we have the right to waive or modify the provision. So the way that I'm gonna modify it is by forgiving the loans. So,
0: okay. okay. And, and
2: the Supreme Court said no. Said not so fast. So right. uh, a bunch of states uh, sued over this and the Supreme Court ruled six to three, the conservatives in the majority versus the, the, the liberal justices and said, well, no, you can't do that. You overstepped your authority. And what they, they, they put forward is, this gets a little bit maybe in the weeds, but it's going to become a big issue for a lot of uh, issues that affect all of us, is they invoke something called the major questions doctrine, which basically says that if Congress wanted to give the executive branch the power to do something, then they would have spelled it out. And if they didn't spell it out, the, the president can't do it. So in other words, if Congress back in 2003, when the Heroes Act passed, said in that law that in the case of an emergency, including a pandemic, the president has the right to cancel student loan debt or something, then the president's actions would have been fine. Under the Supreme Court's ruling, because Congress did not say that, did not give that level of specificity, he does not have the authority to go ahead and do that.
0: Okay, but correct me if I'm wrong, they've, and to use the off used term, pivoted, pivoted, and said the Secretary of Education has the right to establish policy on things like student loans, so we're going to go ahead and create a program to forgive student loans within the rights of the Office of the Secretary
2: of Education. Well, they're trying to do that now. and So they did come out, come out with some other provisions, some other rules that will actually forgive loans for, for folks. But really, what the Supreme Court is saying that, look, if you want to forgive all these student loans, Congress has to pass a law. Now, obviously, Congress has not done that. And under the current political makeup, it's, it's not going to anytime going soon. To. Right. right. And, and, and so this becomes a really big issue. The question is, what can the president actually do? Um, and it's going to affect a lot of issues. Uh, it affects environment, where this administration has done a lot to really use, say, the Clean Air Act and uh, the EPA to try to address climate change. And the court has said in the past, "Well, no. I mean, the laws, the Clean Air Act, which passed back in the you know, thirty or so, thirty forty whatever right. years ago, right. doesn't talk about climate change, so you can't use it that way." Uh, so here's the issue then: if Congress can't pass legislation because of that gridlock you talked about but the president is constrained in acting, if Congress doesn't do it, well, that's when you get kind of stuck, and it becomes very hard to, to, to take action.
0: So, okay, we, we have the inability of the executive branch to, <laughs> to, basically to interact with the legislative
2: branch right. as influenced by the judicial branch. Exactly. That's your separation <laughs> of powers right there. <laughs> They're all involved together. And, and to be clear, I don't want to overstate it, obviously there is still latitude in terms of what presidents and executive branch agencies can do within laws. I mean, there certainly is some latitude. Congress does not pass. The laws Congress passes don't give every single detail. There is some flexibility given uh, to agencies. But the question is, where does that end? At what point does a president— Do you say to a president, essentially, no, that's too far? And look, if you are a partisan, if you are a partisan, Democrat or Republican, look, obviously you'd love for a Democratic president— to, to, to push the boundaries and do things you want. If you're a Republican, you want a Republican president to do that. So you could argue that that this is totally fair. Uh, but what it means is that when you have a situation where Congress is not able to deal with big issues like immigration, another example where there's not been an immigration reform passed in, at this point, I think almost 40 years. 40 years, yeah. Right, and we have an issue at the border with, with the migrant crisis. And and just this week, uh, a court in out west said the, the administration its policy on migrants was unconstitutional because Congress had not authorized it. Well, there is no policy, essentially, so, so what do you do? Right. What's, so,
0: I, again, we're left with, okay, so all three areas of government don't agree.
2: Right. Now what? Well, that's, 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 that's the question, and that, that's a challenge. And, and I'll say it, it, it's, uh, it becomes a bigger challenge when you think about some of the issues we're coming out with. Now, I know later on in the podcast we'll be talking to a, a couple of folks from Fiscal Note who are working really a lot on AI, Right. Uh, that's a big issue that is coming up. We all know it. Uh, six months ago, uh, no one had heard of chatGBT, and now it's become sure. somewhat ubiquitous. Certainly, we're seeing uh, concerns about deep fakes on the internet, uh, sure. videos that are created. and and of course, AI has a lot of uses. It's been around for a very long time, but it's really exploded. And the question is, with a technology like uh, artificial intelligence that is changing so quickly, how can the government keep up? How can it actually do? How can it actually provide? Rules and guidelines so that it's not abused or not used in in dangerous or harmful or discriminatory ways, but but do that in a way that works at the speed of government. Because yeah, we're
0: we're we're bringing these experts in from Fiscal Note. Um, they are a issues management and legislative tracking company. But the, correct me if this is our first in studio guests.
2: These are our very first in studio guests, live in person here at the uh, at the beautiful Willard Office Complex. <laughs> Well, we can't wait to
0: get into it, um, so we're gonna take a quick break, and we'll bring in uh, T.L. Willis, who's the general manager of public policy at Fiscal Note, and Taylor Delawi, who's the senior director of business development, risk, and ESG. We'll be right back. And we're back. Uh, today we are actually joined live in studio with our first studio guest. This is very exciting. This is
2: very exciting for uh, political shadings. And we have
0: with us uh, T.L. Willis, the General Manager of Public Policy and Issues Management for Fiscal Note, and Taylor DeLuis from also FiscalNote, the Senior Director of Business Development, Risk, and ESG. Thanks, guys.
3: Happy to be here.
1: Yeah, thanks for having us. Outstanding.
0: Outstanding. So, first question, get right into it. What's FiscalNote? And for our tens and tens of listeners who don't know, talk to us about the company, talk to us about what's going on, what's exciting, what's happening. Um, shoot, go ahead.
1: Yeah, thanks. Happy to take that question. Sure. Um, so, FiscalNote is a, a leader in both policy and global intelligence. So, we uniquely combine data, technology, insights, empowering customers with critical insights to help them turn those um, insights into action. There's a lot of exciting things that are happening. A lot of exciting stuff, yeah. Come on. (laughs) Do tell. Uh, We work with a lot of customers in the government affairs space. That's sort of our bread and butter. Uh, But we have several different lines of business. But one thing that's really we're working on across the business is some partnerships uh, around AI. So working with OpenAI um, and more, kind of pushing the envelope of what's possible and what's with some of the technology that's available today that hasn't been um, available in the past to drive value for our customers.
0: Right, well, earlier in the podcast, we were actually talking about the intersection of AI and government affairs, so this dovetails nicely. Um, Really, what this comes down to is sort of (laughs) my question, you know, how do I put this? How important is it to be focusing on what's happening at all three levels of government all at once in relationship to that intersection of technology and policy?
1: It's a good question. So, you know, we've seen more unpredictable actions is probably the right way to say it at lower levels of government, yeah. whether that be school boards taking a stand on banning books uh, whether that be local county boards making big decisions on things happening in the solar industry um, you know in the. US we also saw last year pretty political dis- or a pretty important decision from the Supreme Court which pu- pushed all abortion legislation to the states instead of being dis- um, decided federally and that makes it really challenging for people in government affairs because now all of a sudden you have to pay attention to, not just what's happening in your state, but what's happening in other states because that impacts your work. Also what's happening at the local level. And then in my world, I think bigger and on the global scale, people also have to pay attention to what's happening in other countries around the world because sometimes that legislation makes its way over the US, especially in the EU. So it's this melding of all of this information um, from a variety of levels of government, which is Really changed pretty dramatically in the last several years, especially thinking about the local level being so important today. So that's to really
0: past. how that's the big change. Then is is local all the way up to international. Mm-hmm. So okay, then talk to us about where AI fits into that. Like, how does how how is how is AI influencing that?
3: I mean, I think it is influencing all levels of government, but it's also where the information is coming from, right? So you think about, uh, to TL's point, you know, where the sort of stone is being thrown that's going to create the subsequent ripple effect. Oftentimes we see all of these different manifestations of policy movements happening at a local level because you have a lot of different municipalities, counties, you know, local lawmakers that are driving, uh, you know, different social change issues, different issues around the environment. Uh, and that then in turn creates more state legislation and more movement around the state it, level, it and then trickles up, it trickles up. And then also, from an opposite perspective, she mentioned a lot of the work that we do in the EU, and really the EU being the trail, trailblazer as it relates to uh, a lot of the work in ESG, which I know we'll hit on a little bit later too. Sure, um, but how that's affecting the state legislation in California, which you know always has some effect on uh, the trends mm-hmm. that we see in other states too. All that to say is AI is not driving those changes necessarily, but it's driving the information that people sometimes are receiving that they're now ingesting, whether it's news, whether it's social media, whether it's uh, information that they're getting, you know, secondhand perhaps from their friend, that they're now in turn having to act on in one way, shape, or form that I think also has a big effect on the policy.
2: Yeah, that that's really interesting, and it, it, it raises another issue which we've seen over the last couple of years, which is this idea that everybody has their own truth, right? right. We heard about alternative facts a few years ago, and... People can't always even agree on what the basic information is, and it seems like AI could very well make that worse. Maybe it'll make it better in some ways. I mean, especially for a company like Fiscal Note, how do you, how do you make sure that you're providing timely, accurate information for your clients and others? You know, and making sure that what you're getting out there to people is is the right information.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
1: So we have a team of uh, reporters for CQ. Uh, which is one of the brands of fiscal note that uh, every day spend their time up on Capitol Hill. So they're there in person, they're seeing things go back and forth and so really focusing on the reporting they do is really factual based. Like where are the dollars allocated? Where does it go and how was that decision made? Um, not relying on summaries provided by lawmakers or anyone else but insist on, you know, we read a lot of that legislation and analyze it ourselves. And there's certainly a risk when you look at generative AI and the things that are possible today. Uh, you have to be really careful in what you read and what you interpret because it can be a little gray in terms of what's real and what's not. But the goal of what we do in CQ is you know, thinking about the facts and how do we um, make that indisputable. And we're there every day. So we know ins and outs for better for worse what's going on. <laughs> that's great. And I'll
2: say that, that that's true. And I'll just put a little plug in for CQ. And I've been in Washington for about 30 years now going back to working on the Hill. And as a, as, as a lobbyist, uh, CQ has always been a really good, reliable source of information. It's just the facts and that, which makes it really helpful. And that's really useful because there is so much information out there, which much of it is driven by certain agendas, which is fine. But having the the kind of the pure information is really helpful.
0: Yeah, I, you know, I, <clears throat> I think about that, and you know, and the perception of, sort of that outside the beltway, you say the word lobbying, and there's there's a, um, so, shall we say, a connotation, good or bad, to it, right? And ultimately, you know, with legislative tracking, regulatory tracking, issues management, what, whatever, whatever, sort of term you want to apply to what fiscal note does there's this impression that lobbyists are basically in the back room talking individually with, with over steak dinners and bottles of wine or whatever. So so really what this comes down to is, your job is to track the development of legislation and regulation. How does fiscal note help combat that? And, and, or is that true or is it a myth? Like I, I know I've been doing this for 20 years, Andrew's been doing it for a long time, but I'm curious to know from Fiscal Note's perspective, how does Fiscal Note help legitimize that world?
1: Yeah, so it comes down to a lot of reporting on the facts. Um, at, you're right, right? There's times when negotiations occur behind closed doors That's right. or behind the scenes. But sometimes that's really helpful in, in helping to come to an agreement. That's right. Um, and But the actual decision-making process, except um, – Uh, you know, some defense stuff, you know, some highly secretive intel stuff, but that does occur in public, Um, and votes and legislation are public, we're there for all of that, right? The committee hearings, all all that information, Um, and it's our job to take that information, distill down the key points, and ensure that our clients have that information accurately and timely. Nobody's going to be in those back rooms, as you call them, (laughs) so to speak, Uh, but certainly, the information that is presented in the public is really important, and that's where that's where the rubber meets the road. It's like how
3: do you enable your customers, the people you work with, to uh, make them feel like they're maybe in the back rooms or maybe allow them to actually have that measure of influence that they're looking for, but doing it in a way that you're providing them unbiased information that they can then determine this is valuable, this is not. How do I act on this? So the hope is that, to your point about like the reputation of CQ. One of the most longstanding, you know, best in my opinion, unbiased opinion, uh, news organizations <laughs> on Capitol Hill. But it's it's known for being unbiased, right? Yep. right. It's known for, right. you know, being more centered, not providing, so, you know, crazy opinions. But I think it's important to note that, too.
0: So, and thank you for, for bringing that up. I, I, You and I have personally talked about my desire as an advocate to always be in the room where the discussion is happening, mm-hmm. not after the fact, not reactionary, proactive. So, Fiscal Note has an enormous sort of focus right now on things like ESG. I mean, your, your entire division, Taylor, Mr. Lawi, that you manage is focused on that as an issue for the company. So what is it? Let's switch gears a little bit. you know, And, and why does it have so many people reacting negatively to it?
3: There's a lot of different factors you could... Going to that. Um, <laughs> I think, too, you know, I'm, I, I can't give you the, you know, basic superficial answers. I thought a lot about this. Yeah. Um, and one thing to preface, right, we have a large team that is supporting our ESG line of business, even yeah. though I, I appreciate it. I want to make sure that <laughs> I highlight the fact that folks <laughs> like TL, uh, JL of Yao, co-founder of Fisconet, and many it's more, a you know, big are involved in that. Yeah. 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 Um, I think ESG is so polarizing for a number of reasons, right? I mean, you talked, mm-hmm. you and I talked about this, you know, that ESG has been around forever. ESG has a coined term, I think, is... it's, it's, It's decades old, but like now it's become more mainstream, you know, to, I mean, frankly, two years ago, I didn't really know what it was, how to spell it, let alone really like how to define each one of those letters. But you could probably ask most people on the street today and they would have the same, you know, assumption. They don't know what it is. Right. But why is it so polarizing with lawmakers, with the general public? I think it's based upon the fact that it's a huge movement, especially with the work that we do with like commercial corporates to allow for there to be more transparency more accountability you know to affect change ideally I think ESG's intent is very positive but of course how that can be construed with lawmakers and the public sometimes is uh, you know often spun in a way that's to their agenda to their advantage but I think at its core the ESG is a very positive movement it's just more of a question of you know how you're using that narrative to you know drive your agenda whether it's you know through enacting new ESG policy that would affect uh, how financial institutions are investing their capital. Or rather just like changing the way that uh you know certain pieces of policy would affect the environment right to hopefully save trees change climate uh, all that and right. save the climate i should say
0: so e- esg what's the acronym
3: yeah I, I don't. let's know. start there quiz. Right. environmental <laughs> yeah. environmental social governance so yeah each piece is really like a key category for a company but uh the majority of folks that we work with are looking more at the environmental component so Regulatory implications tied to environmental change, and then ultimately how they're actually managing their carbon footprint, you know, and, and really measuring sort of their uh, distribution across their supply chain, their uh, immediate sort of uh, carbon outputs, everything like that. So, <clears throat> Somebody has to be
0: asking for it. There has to be a demand created for it. You guys represent huge companies. Like a, a very large percentage of the Fortune 500 uses fiscal note as a platform, right? right. Mm-hmm. So someone's asking for it. In my world, if someone's asking for it, that usually means it's either investors or leadership are saying, this is a priority, we need to do this. Who who, who are you hearing from that are saying this is a priority? Everybody. Everybody.
3: Yes. I mean, you, if you talk to – in the past nine months since I've really been focusing on this, I probably have talked to over – hundred ESG practitioners from the majority of these, you know, Fortune 500 commercial corporates. And it's amazing because they're getting pressure as sometimes one individual that's managing an entire program. Right. From external customers, from regulators, from their own internal executives who are also learning how to spell it themselves, um, as well as, you know, <laughs> board of investors. So there's a lot of people that are trying to wrap their head around it uh, and really say, all right, how do we become... You know, leaders in this space? How do we use this as a mechanism to not just hold ourselves accountable to improve the environment, but also do good to do well? And I think that's a really important thing to note is that doing good is not good enough at this point. It really has to be tied into uh, identifying potential enterprise risk or where there might be implications to the business while also leveraging ESG more from like a economic growth standpoint. How do we really make this a part of our DNA as a company so that we can Establish ourselves as a leader moving forward, too.
0: So, driving revenue?
3: That's a part of it, yeah. Yeah.
2: That's interesting because, you know, one of the things we've always heard a lot, at least maybe 10, 20 years ago, was, you know, there's environment versus jobs, right? You could either uh, companies and government could take actions that are good for the environment or that create jobs, but you can't do both. And it, it seems like there's been a, a, a sea change, and, not, and that's perhaps a pun a little bit because obviously, right now, the summer, especially not a day goes by, we're hearing stories about extreme heat out west. We're hearing yeah. the, the temperatures of the the wars around Florida and the impact on coral reefs. You have massive forest fires. We've had wildfire haze all over the East Coast. And so it it feels like this tipping point. And it it does seem like the business community has increasingly embraced the idea that, not just for the good of the planet, let's say, but also for the bottom line, the environment really matters. Are are policymakers, are they there? Are they caught up with that, generally, or at, at all levels, federal, state, local? Or is there still kind of a learning curve about the importance of dealing with these kinds of issues?
1: Education is always key. I was say, yeah, <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, <laughs> That's Internal and external.
1: In, yeah. Internal and external, but I think uh, it's a complicated topic. Uh, each one of the ac- letters of the acronym is a complicated topic and requires a reasonable amount of education. Uh, that becomes even more important at the local level when you're faced with a lot of different topic areas. You can become a little bit more specialized, um, but certainly I think it comes down to education. I'll turn over to you, Taylor. You know, um, I mean,
3: I think that, you know, on any subject that you highlight, right, whether it's AI or ESG, you're never going to truly be an expert. I think it's always changing. There's always new information. There's always a new movement. There's always a new initiative. So I think those out there that portray themselves as true ESG experts, right, maybe they're at the forefront today, but you always have to be a student of the game. You always have to be seeking out how to better yourself, better your colleagues, like identify new mechanisms to hold ourselves and our companies more accountable, right? To actually not just like, say, hey, we're doing this, and of course that's where greenwashing ties in, but actually mean it, back it up with action, back it up with capital, back it up with resources. Uh, so I think it's just a constant evolution of just making sure that people are resourcing themselves appropriately to actually do something meaningful tied to like whatever initiative is again, whether it's AI or ESG.
1: And businesses and, um, you know, constituents are both hearing this from the lowest level. So, mm-hmm. like, lawmakers are hearing it from their constituents, and businesses are hearing it from the, you know, employees on the front line of how important this is, and they want them to take action.
0: Is it a generational thing? So, in other words, um, there's a hearing on Capitol Hill about AI, and some of these senators and congressmen don't even know how to use their phones. Is, is it... A generational issue, like is this being driven from a Gen Z or a millennial perspective, or is it across the board what you describe?
3: I think that it is something that you couldn't define one generation as being sort of the catalyst for this Mm -hmm. movement, for this change. I mean, even at all these various conferences that I've been to, I mean, Leo Scry and Bob Eccles are both like very well-renowned professors and uh, have been talking about this for a very long time. Um, I mean, they are not a part of the Gen Z generation. Right. Right. They're not a new movement. I think this is to our point earlier about it having been around for a very long time. Yeah, it's been there. It's been a part of business. It's been a part of uh, legislative and regulatory discussions. But I think now it's just, you know, becoming more broadly adopted, partly because it has to be right. Like it has to be a part of a company's DNA, you know, whether you want it to be or not, because like this is where the movement is is happening. And I think it's a collective effort from multiple different generations, multiple different industries, multiple different, uh, you know, people from all types of backgrounds, whether brand new in a company or, you know, you've been there for 20 plus years. So I think it's just something that is more universal.
0: Yeah, I'm glad to hear you say that. I had a, a colleague of mine I was discussing this with, and particularly the ESG issue, and he was happened to be in a state talking to a, a, a state attorney general who brushed by real quick. Hey, how you doing? Good to see you. Hey, I have a question for you. Um, is your effort woke? <laughs> and and the, the lobbyist in question was taken a little back, and he said, no, your state has tightened standards to the point where we have to respond that way. And by the way, we've been in business for 150 years we want to lead this issue because that's what we do, Mm -hmm. right? It's not about one ideology
3: or one agenda. It's about this is what business is. Exactly, yeah. And that goes back to the fact that we want to operate off of facts. We want to enable technology to provide our customers, provide our internal employees, provide people that we work with the facts so that they can go and make their own, as best as it can be, educated opinion on what they need to do and how they need to take action on it Um, And I think it's tough, too, because we're humans. We all have our own opinions. But at the same time, it's like, how do we sort of layer that into factual evidence of what needs to be done to, as cheesy as it is, make the world a better place? That's kind of the hope of, you know, what type of information we're providing the people we work with.
0: I mean, we we live in a very capitalist society, but you know, it's also nice to be able to look yourself in the mirror every morning and know you're doing the right thing for the right reason. Trying, yeah. trying, trying to. Trying doing to. Doing everything right. you can yeah. to. Yeah. That's exactly. exactly.
2: right. So a question, going back a little bit to AI, but it also, I mean, it impacts other issues. I mean, You get the sense when you, at least here in Washington, when you see policymakers talk about AI, they're kind of afraid of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Look, six months ago, none of us had heard of ChatGPT, and now it's become somewhat ubiquitous. In fact, everything I'm saying is all done on ChatGPT. <laughs> really. But, um, but, but there is a certain amount of almost worry about it. You had uh, Chuck Schumer, the Senate Majority Leader, coming out saying we need to have a whole new kind of framework for how we deal with regulation of policy because it's, it's it's evolving so fast. I mean, are, are you you work in this? You're involved in this. Are you afraid of AI, or are you excited about it, or
3: a little of both? Yeah, I mean, look, Arnold Schwarzenegger is not going to jump out of a ship and tell me I ought to be back, right? We're not going to do that. <laughs> so, so, so
2: Skynet is not real, is so, that what you're saying? Well, okay, I don't but, know, maybe. Yes, I it have is. No idea. Oh, it is. Oh, oh, oh sorry. sorry, I said that out loud. We can cut that out during <laughs> post editing. We'll do that in post. No problem.
3: But no, I don't. I wouldn't say that I'm. You know, people are always afraid of things that they don't know, right? People are always afraid of things that they don't know, they don't understand. That's typically where fear comes from. But um, I would say, do I know really about AI and all this kind of stuff? I mean. To me, I probably am no better than the next guy on the street, you know, when you really get down to it on what it is, what it can do for us, what it can't do for us, why it might be scary. So I think part of it is what we talked about, right? Continued education, right? Making sure that you're having conversations with people that share your perspective and also don't share your perspective, because I think that allows you to actually understand what's out there and you know ultimately how you can use it, right? In your best interest and right. in the people around you. So uh, personally, I don't think AI is scary, but I think that it is something that we have seen right with a lot of the people that we work with and it really comes down to, you know, trying to enable them with the right information, arm them with the right facts, right, so that they can go in and, and really use it as they see fit, right, to the benefit of their company, their uh, you know, business, their family, right? All of that.
1: I've been building AI products for the last seven years. I was going to say, yeah. (laughs) Uh, It's really about the training data. And so there's no reason to be afraid of it if you have have the right training data. Um, And so something, a company like OpenAI and ChatGPT, their product, they've spent a lot of time in getting that training data right Mm -hmm. uh, because your product is only as good as that training data set. Right. Yeah,
0: I, I, I think there's two schools of thought there. Either it can really aid in what I do or it's a threat to what mm-hmm. I do. Um, and I, I think the more that uh, people see it as an aid and as a benefit, the better. Um, let's let's take that to a, a logical conclusion for the interview then. Talk to us about, you know, Phil Note just announced a massive partnership with, with AI, right? Mm-hmm. to basically bring that to the, the forefront of, of what you guys do. Talk to us about a little bit of a crystal ball like what what are the other than ESG other than AI? like talk to us about emerging issues. You guys represent a huge swath of companies who do a lot of different businesses, including our sponsor, Somfi. Um, what does what does all this mean to a company like Somfi? and what are those some of those issues? Just you know free willing. like there's no wrong answer.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of interesting issues happening across the world today., Yeah. I'm having name a few and maybe tell yeah, you, you for can it. jump go for it. in. Um, we're seeing a lot around data privacy, mm-hmm. uh, especially in the AI space, and how do you. Um, how do we protect that? How do we protect that? Uh, and so that's thinking about the federal government, and the US doesn't exactly move. It's like turning a cruise ship, right? It's not on a dime. (laughs) Um, And so it takes some time for that regulation and uh, legislation to catch up. And so I think there's a lot of uh, opportunity there in terms of data privacy. That's probably the biggest one that I think is coming up that's like bubbling up behind the scenes for a lot of our customers. I'll let you jump in with some other ones.
3: And although maybe it's not an issue topic per se or like an issue at its core, it also has like like a lot of branches of subtopics, but supply chain issues as a whole, especially with... The war in Ukraine, right, we look at a lot of like macro uh, geopolitical trends that are ultimately driving change across different countries, the relationships of those countries, the relationships of the policymakers in those countries. So almost
0: unintended consequences. Exactly. Yeah.
3: Or intended sometimes, too. Yeah. I mean, you you look at a lot of the tax tariffs, you know, that have inhibited trade or try to facilitate it. It's uh, something that we always look at. So uh, as, you know. Globalization has continued just to evolve and, uh, you know, grow and where its information is just so much more readily available, I think, that also causes us to actually see what's happening on the other side of the world. And then we actually can see those ripple effects from, uh, you know, what one country is deciding to do or maybe not do. And then ultimately how it's actually affecting, you know, you as a consumer at home where I don't get my favorite cereal because there's a wheat shortage. Why is that happening? I don't know.
0: (laughs) Right, right. So does that become a predictive tool?
3: Yeah, I mean, certainly we would like to think of ourselves as a crystal ball. I think like anyone that says that I can predict the future right now, I mean, yeah, maybe on. maybe you are the yeah. Terminator, and I don't know, <laughs> right, right. But I think it's more so just, again, there's so much information and there's so much being produced on a daily basis. As a consumer, you cannot read through all of that. You can't ingest that right in a logical way without probably spending your entire day reading and doing nothing about it. Right, so, even
2: if policymakers can't spend exactly. their all day, that's their job. They can't. Know everything, right? Well, that's why they have a staff, right? They have a staff well, exactly. But even staff sometimes they they have to pick and choose also. Exactly.
3: Yeah. It's like, what do we choose to invest our time in? Right? And
1: AI can be helpful in that, in starting to summarize really big pieces of information and distilling it down because it is information overload right now. Yeah,
0: yeah, I totally agree with that. I mean, <clears throat> Andrew and I talk about this a lot. Like, what does a dream world look like from a government affairs perspective? And I will tell you that that's why. Andrew and my, and our colleagues fear things like term limits because you take that historical perspective right off the table, whether they're staff or whether they're members or whether they're, you know, school board, whatever it is, you've, you've literally limited the amount of time that person has had a butt in the chair and can absorb all of that information quickly. Mm -hmm. Right. And then can go back. Well, five years we discussed this and here's what we did or not. But it, it, it begs the question: Like, what does that ideal world look like? We talk a lot, of, a, a lot about it. How would we improve the the world we live in? Again, to make uh, you know business easier, right? To, ma- to make to make to make to drive revenue, to generate good data, to protect privacy, and within that data, I mean, it's 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 somewhat of a circular relational argument.
3: Yeah. So. I mean, being a, being a lawmaker today is a challenging job under any circumstances, right? But I think it's even more challenging given the fact that now they're being held accountable to the fact that they have access to this information, right? So you need, you're a brand new congressman or congresswoman, right? You need to know everything that has happened. You need to know the history of the world. You also need right. to keep track of everything that's happening today. Right. Oh, and you also need to tell me what emerging issues are going to be popping up too.
0: Right. Yeah. I don't know, Senator. Let me Google that for you. Yeah, I'm but that, I mean, that's what right. people are
3: doing. Like, <laughs> right. At the end of the day, that's what people are doing. Like call a spade a spade. They're getting their information, maybe not from Google, but from sources that you know are open and available, which is a great thing. But those sources need to be built on truth, the facts, right, so that we can allow our lawmakers accurate data, accurate data, so that they can then you know go act on it appropriately.
0: Well, it's, it's nice to know that Fiscal Note is helping us do that. trying to, um, yes. And, the, and that's why Sophie is a client. So, that being said, we hope this wasn't too painful for you guys to come into the studio today. That was great. We want to thank you for your time. Thank you so much. Um, so, if you're going to leave us with one thing about Fiscal Note, like one big thing, right? Uh, our, our, our friend Scott Van Pelt uh, on SportsCenter ends his show with one big thing. So talk to us, fiscal. what is Fiscal Notes' one big thing you'd like to leave us with?
1: You're putting me on the spot. <laughs> I
0: think that's the whole point of the podcast, actually.
3: <laughs> In a day and age of information overload, yeah. how do you as an individual, as a husband, as a wife, as a mom, as a dad, as right. a friend, right? How do you take that information and actually make it meaningful to your life? The hope is that Fiscal Note is a part of the positive change. Of making that information useful and valuable to all people, whether government affairs or just Joe Schmo sitting on your couch at home, seems to be the great focus of your company. Yeah,
0: awesome.
2: That's great. Thank you. Thank you for the work you do, and thank you for being here today. Yeah. Thanks
3: for thank having me. For inviting us, embodiment. this is awesome.
0: All right. So after the break, we'll wrap up and talk about next steps. Thanks.
2: Well, that was a lot of information from T.L. and Taylor. Yeah, that was really uh, fantastic. And, I mean, it's, it's a great uh, company. It's, it's, their most powerful asset really is their credibility. There's so much information out there. Some of it true, some of it not true. And, and what they really do is provide accurate information and, and context, which is so important for policymakers and, and the public.
0: Well, we really enjoyed having them in the studio today, and it was a great conversation. We hope you enjoyed it. I'm John Lawyer for the Political Shadings Podcast.
2: And I'm Andrew Goldberg. Remember, we are your
0: window into politics in the green economy, where we are discussing essentially the intersection of business, policy, politics, green building, energy efficiency, and a little bit of common sense as well, on occasion. Can't thank you enough for listening, and we hope to talk to you again soon. Bye-bye.